You can turn to Luke chapter 8. We'll be in verses 1 through 3. If you're wondering how in the world do you preach that text, I was wondering the same thing on Monday morning. I was speaking at a, a teen event in Seattle several years ago, and afterwards a bunch of the teens and a bunch of the leaders there were having uh, a meal together, and one of, the, one of the teenage girls there said, do you like my shirt? And I looked at her shirt and it read, the future is female. And I said, well, is there a place for males in this future? And she said, no. And I said, then I don't like your shirt. The future isn't female. The future isn't male. God has made us male and female. And, and as male and female, we are fitting compliments to one another. As we image God together, we serve God together, we become like Christ together. And so today's sermon, as we look at a list of women who faithfully served Jesus in the time of his public ministry... Today's sermon might feel a little different. It, it, it feels a little bit like when we came to the passage earlier in Luke that just listed the names of the disciples. There's a lot of information that we can draw, but a sermon is more than information. We want to do more on a Sunday morning, particularly during the time of preaching, than convey information to one another. If that were the only goal, we would send out an email on Saturday night and say, enjoy sleeping in tomorrow morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three verses here. where We're, we're going to seek, like, like we do every week, but this week will be particularly clear. We're going to seek to put them in the context of the entire Gospel of Luke, and in some cases, seek to understand them in the context of the entire Bible. And so the reason to slow down here, right, it's tempting to want to say, well, let's just roll this passage into the next one. But, but the reason I want to slow down here and just deal with these three verses is to give us time to deal with a theme that's developed in the book of Luke and will continue to develop in the book of Luke. And that's the significant role that women play in the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke has circled this early and does it throughout the gospel and ends with women serving and following Jesus. So that's the reason we're going to slow down here. There, there could be any number of passages where we could have stopped and said, all right, let's trace this theme through the book of Luke, but this feels like the right place to slow down. You know, it was almost a year ago that we started walking through the book of Luke, and so if you can remember that far back, we, re we remember that the, the Gospels opened early with Mary as an example of faith, as a teenager being told that though you've never known a man, that you will bear the Son of God. And what did she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Likewise, Elizabeth was, was highlighted as the mother of John the Baptist when she saw Mary while Mary was pregnant and she was pregnant with John the Baptist. Luke said she was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed, blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
and then a passage that Luke only records, which again I think is because Luke wants to draw our attention to this, is Anna the prophetess. Again, she only shows up in Luke's account in chapter 2. Luke says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour. At the same time, Joseph and Mary and a very young Jesus are walking into the temple. They meet Anna, and she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so at the beginning of Jesus' life, you have this, this condensation of, of Mary and Elizabeth and Anna all praising and glorifying God and being filled with the Spirit and obedient to the Lord. And then at, at the back end of Jesus' life, we find faithful women. Some of these women are even mentioned in our text this morning. They are present and ministering to Jesus. As many of the disciples fled there are faithful women who are standing on and watching Jesus be crucified. As a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus and lays it in a tomb, Luke writes at the end of chapter 23, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They showed up early that Sunday morning to actually anoint the body of Jesus, but he wasn't there. So we see that the life of Christ is bookended by examples of faith, trust, and service to God by these faithful and righteous women. And so, as I said earlier, I, I believe there'd be a lot of appropriate spots to pause and say, let's kind of track this theme through Luke but this seems like the best place. So let's dive into the text. Point number one, women played a significant role in responding to and serving Jesus. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And jo Joanna, the wife of, that's probably best pronounced, Cusa, if we want to be fair to him. Herod's, sometimes we just call people whatever we want, but we'll try our best here. Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So verse 1 opens with, with that phrase, soon afterwards. Luke has used that before. It kind of draws our attention back to the context before, where the woman with a reputation in the city of, of being a sinner comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints him with expensive ointment. You know, if you, if you missed last week, I would encourage you, to, to go online and listen to that sermon, not because I think I did a particularly good job. I couldn't even get words out of my mouth last week, but that's not the point. The point is that everything in the book of Luke is sort of condensed in this one passage. I was sharing with some of you guys after church that if you wanted to summarize Luke in one text, it would, it would likely be Luke 7, 36 through 50. In this one passage, you have the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. You have Jesus' compassion towards a woman who is known in the city as a sinner. You have the ladies 
love and devotion on full display because she understands the fullness of the forgiveness that she's been given in Christ. And you have Jesus opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. There's so much that Luke has been driving at for all these chapters just summed up so beautifully in that picture. It's after this that Jesus began traveling around Galilee and preaching in different cities, or we could say he continues to travel around Galilee and preaching in different cities. As you know, if you've been with us for this whole series, Luke, Luke structures his gospel a particular way. That, that Jesus is ministering outside of Jerusalem in Galilee. He's traveling from city to city preaching. And, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 50 or 51, somewhere in there, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. So you've got Jesus on the outside. He's going to Jerusalem where he dies and rises, rises again. And then in the book of Acts, the message about Jesus goes from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's how Luke structures Luke and Acts. And so here's Jesus traveling city to city. And he is preaching. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God. We saw this in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus is doing that which he was sent to do to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the nature of this kingdom we will get into more specifically later on in Luke. But for now, suffice it to say that Jesus is preaching the opportunity to submit to him as king and Lord and to know eternal life, to come to gain eternal life if they would believe his message, believe in his person, and, and throw themselves at his mercy, that they might be reconciled to God. And so with Jesus, as he goes about and he proclaims the kingdom of God, there's two groups of people mentioned in our text that are traveling with Jesus. We have the twelve, and we have these faithful ladies. We're going to start with these faithful women, and we'll come back to the twelve here in a moment. What we see about the, the women that were traveling with Jesus is several things. First, that they were the recipients of Jesus' work. If you look there in verse 2, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. One of the themes that we could track through the Gospel of Luke is, Luke, is Jesus' compassion towards women. Jesus' healing, delivering, forgiving, and teaching weren't reserved just for the twelve or even just for men. Now, this is significant in a society that tended to view women as second-class citizens. We only have to go back to the passage we just mentioned in Luke 7 to find confirmation of Jesus' compassion, where he opposes Simon and actually tries to get Simon to see that, that you need to see what this poor lady sees here who has a reputation for being a sinner. And so these ladies are recipients of the, of the delivering and saving work of Christ. And so we might apply it to ourselves this way, that there's no saving benefit that comes just to one gender. 
There's no saving benefit that's available to men that's not available to women. There are not winners and losers inside of Christ Jesus. There are not insiders and outsiders when you're talking about those who are in Christ. A person who is in Christ receives all the spiritual blessings that that Jesus has earned for us. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him. Jesus entered history to purchase salvation for men and women that they might be reconciled to God and to live with Him forever. In Christ, all the spiritual blessings flow to everyone that is in Him. That's why Paul said in the book of Galatians, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Christ then... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in Christ, these varying groups become one. Now, it doesn't mean that that all differences are vanished at that point. It doesn't mean when you come to Christ as a man, you cease to be a man. Or if you come to Christ as a woman, you cease to be a woman. Or if you come to Christ as as a Greek, you cease to be Greek. It's everyone together in Christ receiving the benefits that Christ has earned. Everyone receives the inheritance that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has earned for us. So whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, if you are in Christ, you receive the benefits that the Son has purchased for you and that He alone deserves, but He gives to us by grace. We are fellow heirs, Peter says, of the grace of life. And that context is husbands learning to view their wives properly as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So in Christ, then, men and women are not only on equal ground in terms of salvation, but what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus is that he didn't limit his teaching ministry to men only. And this would have been popular in in the culture. There's There's a book of Jewish writings that began before the time of Jesus, extended beyond the time of Jesus, called the Talmud. It's a collection of Jewish teaching written and and accumulated by many different rabbis. But the Talmud said this, and again, some of this was written before Christ even came on the scene. It would be better to burn the Torah. That's the, the first five books of the Old Testament. It would be better to burn the Torah than to teach a woman. It would be better to burn the Torah than to teach a woman. Well, Jesus flipped this on its head. He didn't burn the word. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, we'll get there at some point. But Mary is praised for sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. While Martha is busy serving, she's anxious, and what she's doing is is commendable. But Jesus says, "You're, you're so anxious about serving that you've missed the better thing to sit at the feet of Jesus. So Jesus throws out this notion that theology and learning is just for the boys, and the women can be over here serving all the tables. You know, I'm, I'm thankful 
In fact, Dave mentioned that our women's Bible study is starting back up. I'm thankful for a group of ladies who takes the word seriously. They gather together, and it's, it's not a knitting club, and I have no problems with knitting clubs. If you want to start one, I'll try to learn how to knit. But they come together for the purpose of studying God's word. And they use Christ-centered commentaries to help them understand the Bible, see Jesus and all of Scripture, and to live differently as a result. I praise God for the focus of that lady's Bible study. So Christ didn't limit his teaching to women. He doesn't limit so, or just to men. And women, these women mentioned here, they become faithful followers of Christ and they aid him in his ministry. They become faithful followers of Christ and aid him in his ministry. The first one mentioned is Mary Magdalene. You've probably heard that name. Magdalene is probably not actually her last name. It's probably an indication of where she came from. There's a city called Magdala that's on the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So she's from this area called Magdala. Her name is Mary. There's so many Marys in Scripture, it's hard to keep them straight sometimes. Some people try to equate Mary Magdalene with the sinful woman in Luke 7, but that has a lot more to do with church tradition than actual exposition. I don't see that in the text anywhere. I don't see any reason to conclude that. We do know, because Luke records it for us here, that Mary was the recipient of the delivering work of Jesus. She had seven unclean angels, demons, that were cast out of her. She is one of the faithful ones who we mentioned in the introduction that is at the crucifixion of Jesus, one of the ones who saw where Jesus was laid and went to anoint the body of Jesus Sunday morning following the crucifixion. There was a lady who was with Mary Magdalene at that point, and her name is Joanna, and she's also mentioned in our text. We don't know what exactly Joanna was healed of, but we can surmise, based on the way that Luke introduces these ladies, that she must have been the recipient of, some, uh, of healing, of some spiritual or physical malady. You know, unlike so many of those who were drawn to Jesus and chose to follow Jesus, Joanna seems to be a woman of means. She wasn't poor. Her husband was the steward of Herod, the Tetrarch. He was Cusa, the household manager of Herod. This means that Joanna likely lived in Tiberias, which is the capital of Galilee. Now, we aren't told how Cusa felt about his wife going and following Jesus and traveling with him and ministering to Jesus. We do know that traditionally and culturally, that women wouldn't be allowed to travel with a rabbi or with a teacher. It was taboo. It was off limits, especially for a married woman. So we don't know what Kuza felt, whether he recognized it or not. Jesus is the one man on the entire planet that he could trust, to trust infallibly with his wife to keep her safe and protected. And not only that, but to return her better than she left. Now, I want to encourage us men, if we have a wife or if we have daughters, 
the best thing we can do for them, again, we don't know what Kuza did, so we're not reprimanding him or praising him, but the best thing we can do is to help them know and follow Christ. Let me, let me implore you not to get in the way of your wife or your daughter serving Christ. If, if she has an idea of how to serve people in the church, get behind that. Don't, don't grumble because it might mean a little bit of participation on your end or a little bit of inconvenience on your end. You know, we mentioned women's Bible study. If your wife or your daughter wants to go volunteer to help them get there any way you can, pray with them and for them that they might know and love Christ. Do, do not get in the way of them pursuing Christ. So here we have Joanna. Again, we mentioned in Luke 24, Joanna and Mary Magdalene and others at the empty tomb, they hear from the angel that Jesus is not here. He has risen from the dead. And I love the way that text develops because the angel says, don't you remember how he told you that he must die and rise again? And then the text says, and they remembered his words. The angel says, don't you remember that Jesus said this was going to happen? And it was that moment they remembered the words of Jesus as like the pieces of the puzzle came together. Imagine the moment. Imagine their hearts that must have exploded within them as the Holy Spirit gave them insight into the words of Jesus that they had heard multiple times. What was difficult to discern before the resurrection of Jesus is now seen with brilliant clarity that it was necessary for Christ to die and rise again to accomplish salvation for sinners like Mary Magdalene and like Joanna and like Susanna and like all of us this morning who are in need of Christ. When they hear this news, when they hear the announcement, they run. They, they go and they tell the disciples and, and other followers of Jesus who are gathered that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And how disappointing it must have been for them to hear from the angel, to remember the words of Jesus, to be given clarity and sight into the resurrection of Jesus, and run and tell the others. And Luke says, these words seem to them an idle tale. They didn't initially believe, and they did not believe them. Peter and John, though, had an inkling, and they took off. And I love that John records that he was faster than Peter and beat Peter to the empty tomb. So that's Joanna. Lastly, we have Susanna mentioned here. Now this is actually the only place that Susanna is mentioned in the Bible, so we don't know anything else about her other than she was a faithful servant of Christ. The text does say that there's these three women, and then an important phrase there, and many others. And what did they do? Luke says at the end of verse 3, they supported Jesus financially as he ministered. They are supporters. They are enablers of this ministry. They help provide monetary support, likely food and supplies as Jesus and the disciples traveled from city to city proclaiming the kingdom of God, these faithful ladies contributed to the spread of the gospel through their service to Christ. 
This is a, a reflection of their devotion and love for Christ, their faithfulness to Him. You know, in one sense, we might say that God is God and He doesn't need the gifts of these faithful ladies for the ministry of Jesus to go on, and that's true. Jesus could have spoken whatever He wanted to into existence, but God uses means to accomplish His will, and one of the means He used to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God in Galilee was the support of these faithful ladies that followed Christ. So Jesus healed, he delivered, he taught, he discipled, he served alongside this group of ladies. He didn't relegate them to less than their male counterparts, which, again, this would have been shocking in this time and culture. These faithful ladies that serve as an example for us. But there's another group that Luke identifies, the twelve. These are the disciples. These are the ones who will become the apostles. And it's in this, the the mentioning of the twelve, that we get a glimpse into the truth that Jesus, Jesus affirms and dignifies ladies, but he also recognizes distinctions between men and women. You can see there at the end of verse uh, 1 there, the mention of the 12 were with Christ. So you have Jesus. In, in one sense, we're all one in Christ, but that doesn't destroy differences between male and female. Francis Schaeffer said, Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Tell me what the world is saying today, and I will tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Now, I believe, since Francis Schaeffer said that, the time frame is sped up a little bit. But what a stinging rebuke. And so we want to be careful not to just kind of go with whatever the culture is saying, whatever the, whatever the world is saying. In fact, one of the reasons I continually believe the Bible and believe that it's true and believe that God inspired the Bible, not a group of just men writing of their own accord, is that in every culture, in every time period, there are places in Scripture that rub up against the culture. I think if men alone wrote the Bible, we'd be able to point to a culture and a time when these men were writing, and these, these people would be able to say, yes, this word fits me perfectly. This says everything I agree with. This says everything I want to hear. That, but we don't find that anywhere in history. We always find the Word of God rubbing up against what's popular and cool in a given culture. And if God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we should expect that. We should expect to come across places that rub against the grain of our popular assumptions. We've already seen that, that in Jesus' day, he bucked up against the culture in which women weren't allowed to sit at the foot of a teacher. They weren't allowed to travel with a rabbi. Now, we, we take a moment to consider that, yes, even today, the Bible rubs up against our culture. In our day, it's common to assume that, that the differences between men and women are nothing more than cultural norms that have been blindly accepted from generation to generation, passed on down. And so, so these are just seeming differences, but really it's just cultural appropriation. And, and that's why men and women appear to be 
different. So many think then the answer is to sort of flatten this down to, well, there are no differences between man and woman. Some have gone so far to argue that male and female are interchangeable. So a man might be a woman or a woman might become a man. But the Bible teaches us that there are real fundamental differences between men and women, male and female. Manhood and womanhood are God's handiwork interwoven into us from the time of creation. He designed men and women differently in some significant and important ways for his own glory. There was a study done recently about the differences in male and female police officers. And I've got a friend here, Tony, who's a police officer. You can argue with me whether this is true or not. The summary of the study said women police officers are less likely to do a search, but more likely to find something when they do. And it doesn't surprise one of us that women are typically better at finding things than men. Jesus affirmed these sort of distinctions between men and women, as we would expect him to do, as he is the one who all things were created by him and through him, or for him and through him. Jesus affirmed these, this distinction in Matthew 19, when, he, when he's speaking of divorce in this context, but he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them both male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his, and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is affirming the Genesis 1 and 2 design of men and women. God made Adam first and demonstrated to Adam by parading all the animals before him that there is no suitable partner for him. There is no suitable helper for him. So as Adam goes under anesthesia, God creates Eve from his rib, and together, since it's not good for man to dwell alone, together they would image God, they would fulfill the will of God together, they would tend the garden together, and they would enjoy the presence of the Lord together. God made them male and female as perfect complements to one another. It was his original, wonderful, glorious design. And when you think about it, you know, it'd be fun to just pick on guys this whole time and say how great women are, and we could have a lot of laughs about that. But when you think about it, if you were to list the weaknesses that are typical to men, and, and you are to list the weaknesses that are typical to women, and you were to place these charts side by side, if you overlaid them, you would see that the weaknesses of men and the weaknesses of women are opportunities for the other to demonstrate where they are strong because God has made us compliments to one another. There is a beauty in how God created us, male and female. So resist the cultural urge to flatten that and to make them nothing. Part of the distinctions between Men and women then filter down to the roles that God has given us, specifically in two places, in the home and in the church. Men are tasked with headship or leadership in the home and in God's family, the church. 
this is where the mention of the 12 comes in and becomes important. God assigned these men, the 12 apostles, to lead, to preach, to found the church, to write much of the New Testament, and to train the early church to identify godly and gifted men to then become elders and leaders and shepherds in the local church. And this is where some of us might want to throw up our hands and say, oh yeah, here it is. Here's the time in the sermon where men get to lead in order to get their way and women have to suffer in light of that. Well, I think part of the problem is we've allowed the world to so influence the way that we understand leadership that we've bought the lie that to lead is to fulfill your own desires. But there's a difference between male headship and male domination. And, and, and it is true that throughout history and even today, there's all kinds of, uh, of things we could point to and say, look how men have abused their authority. Look how they've treated women as objects instead of people to be loved and cared for. It's true enough, and, and sin has indeed corrupted our world. But in Christ, in Christ, we are being renewed day by day into the image of the one who led by suffering, led by giving up his own life. And we can see this specifically. Again, we're going to zoom out a little bit here and try to capture sort of a big picture in Scripture. We can see this specifically if we want to apply it to marriage. Now, I think, I think manhood and womanhood apply to more than just marriage. But if we think about how, this, how sin has corrupted us, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall happens, and part of the curse on Eve was, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this desire... If you have questions about this, I'd love to talk to you more. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming some things here. But this desire is not a physical, sexual desire for your husband. That's not, that's not a curse. This is in the context of Adam failing to lead well. He's about to look at Adam and accuse him of failing to lead well. And so the curse is all kinds of dysfunction in the way that husbands and wives relate to one another. I, I believe that in Genesis 3, God is saying, you will desire to overthrow the leadership of the husband, and the husband will respond by ruling over you. He will seek to crush you. He will seek to use you for his own gain. But Christ comes, and he has paid the penalty not only for the sins, for all the times that we have failed to lead well, but he's also renewing us into the image of Christ, and so you get to the New Testament, and husbands aren't ruling with an iron fist. They are called to love in such a way that it demonstrates, it pictures the love of Christ for his church. It's a self-giving love, a self-sacrificial love. Not to rule over someone in order to fulfill my own desires, but to lay down my life in self-sacrificial love for the woman that God has given me. So real leadership. Again, if, if we accept the world's definition of leadership, that it's, it's domineering to get your own way, then yeah, this is, this is bad news. But real leadership is not bullying to get your way, whether that's in the church or whether it's in the home. It's not bullying to get your way. It's loving self-sacrifice for the good of others. It's not 
fulfilling your own desires, it's laying aside your desires so that you might serve. It might look like praying in the driveway after a long day of work. Lord, give me the energy not to go inside and just check out. Help me to love my wife and my kids if God has given you that. Help me to pay attention. Help me to do whatever is necessary for them in the name of love. Leadership is not making everyone else clean the house so you get to chill out. It's gathering the family together to read the Bible and to pray together. It's laying your life down for the good of those around you. So, again, for men, the question for us this morning as it relates to manhood and masculinity, whether you're married or not, the question isn't, how black do you like your coffee? Praise the Lord. Or how big are the tires on your truck? Right? There's nothing wrong with black coffee. There's nothing wrong with big tires on your truck. But according to Scripture, those things actually have very little to do with whether you are walking in biblical manhood or not. The question is, how are you relating to the women who God has placed around you? Whether it's children, with daughters, whether it's wives, whether it's co-workers, whether it's the stranger at the mall or at Walmart, how are you relating to them? Do you sense a responsibility to care and love for and to protect those who are around you, or do they exist for your gain? Do they exist for you to fulfill your own pleasure? One of those responses is godliness, to love and to protect and to provide for. One of those is nothing more than fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So Jesus operates in this realm where he identifies these, and he's teaching and affirming these distinctions between men and women. There's a couple implications here for the ladies. First, embrace the beauty of God's good design. I read this week, the holier a woman is, the more she is a woman. The holier a woman is, the more she is a woman. You know, there's real freedom in living consistent with who God has designed you to be. And I'm not, I've not been real specific here of this is what this looks like and this is what this must look like. And that's because we are, we're all in these different circumstances. And for you, femininity may look a little bit different, as we'll talk about in just a, a moment. But this, this freedom... And this living in concert with God, who God has made us to be, this starts with being captured by the beauty and splendor of Christ. Trusting Him, that His design and His will is good. Growing in Him, asking Him to make you more like Christ and loving Him. A second application, I know that there are those who by necessity must take up the role of spiritual leadership in the home. We can think of any number of reasons why this would be true. It could be a single mom. It could be moms who have a husband who have passed away. It could be moms whose husbands are not saved and are therefore incapable of leading the family spiritually. We have moms whose husbands may be apathetic to what God is calling them to do and to, to be. And I want to just encourage you for a moment that your church is for you. 
If that's where you find yourself, we are for you. We go into our elder meetings and we plead for you. We desire to come alongside you and we admire your willingness to take up a role that if, if everything were right in this world, you wouldn't have to step into. But you love your children, you love Christ, and you want your children to love Christ. And we want to come alongside you, and we want to encourage you. Keep going, keep going, keep pouring into your children. Keep loving them towards Christ. You know, in an article published by the Freedom From Religion Association, not the Freedom of Religion Association, that'd be something we could get behind, Freedom from religion, they wrote, Organized religion always has been and remains the greatest enemy of women. By the third chapter of Genesis, this is what we just talked about, women lost her rights, her standing, her identity, and motherhood becomes a God-inflicted curse, degrading her status in the world. Is this true? Is this true? Is Christianity a threat to women or has sin so corrupted the way that men and women often relate to one another that what's needed is not to overthrow Christianity but to embrace God's beautiful design and to live consistent with what God has called us to do. In fact, one historian wrote, when this happens, wherever Christianity has gone, he said, the condition and status of women has improved. In today's world, wherever Christianity has flourished, men and women are both recognized as valued members of society. Wherever Christianity has been largely rejected, women have few rights and can be treated as something less than a full person. So what about today? What about secularism today? If, if We've bought a lie if we think that's empowerment, that the sexual revolution has somehow empowered women. What we need is to be faithful to Scripture. Now we said in the beginning that, that Luke takes up this as a theme in his gospel. It's, it's all over the place. It's the beginning, the end, it's Luke 7, it's Jesus picking women like the persistent widow as, as examples in his parables. So this becomes sort of a sub-theme in his gospel that, of these faithful women, and that's because it fits under the bigger, more prominent theme that Jesus has come to save all kinds of people. That's why we're not surprised that Luke highlights this. Because the whole point of Luke is that he's come to save all different kinds of people. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, they all have a place next to Jesus if they would humble themselves and come to Christ by faith. Luke has been driving at this point. He's been driving at it throughout the entire gospel, but particularly what we just finished in Luke chapter 7, it was a Gentile who demonstrated faith that Jesus hadn't seen in all of Israel, and it was the sinful woman that's humble enough to come wash the feet of Jesus. And so, as we said earlier, true freedom, true freedom is found in walking in obedience to Christ, and it starts in treasuring and valuing and loving Him. I, it reminds me of that great line, and it's a wonderful life. George Bailey's just had his whole perspective turned upside down, and, but he's got to go to jail. And on his way to jail, he says, well, well, hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. You know, if your heart is captured by something, 
larger than jail, then you are truly free. You are truly free. And Christ offers us that freedom in himself and in his work. Let's pray together. We'll sing a, a final song and then Jeff will come lead us in communion. Father, may we humble ourselves to receive your word. May we have courage and strength to believe your word. But Lord, more, more than that, may you change us. Will you make us more loving and sacrificial and submissive, more kind and generous, more protecting and caring? Lord, ultimately, we, we want to become like Christ. Would you do that? for us. In Jesus' name, amen.